So we've been mentioning, touching on, repeating that um, our experience is uh, constructed, it's put together, it's built up, put together out of various conditions, including what we pay attention to and how. I don't know if anyone's counted how many times we've said that. A lot. What we pay attention to and how. And so when we remember that, we remember that um, our experience is not independent, it's not objective, it's not neutral in the way we habitually take it to be. This matters a great deal. If it's kind of shaped by what we pay attention to and how, that means that it's not just um, what it seems when we look at it through the habitual uh, ways of relating to experience. And so we've been touching on this, particularly from this lens of Vedana. Saying our Vedana is a builder of experience. Vedana is a builder of experience. It's a building block of experience. And perhaps, you know, worth kind of breaking down how that has come into play in the practice we've been doing. So maybe, um, you know, this afternoon we were attuning to uh, the pleasant part of the range of Vedana. Maybe we were hearing a pleasant sound or finding a pleasant aspect of the breath or of the hearing. And perhaps because we were doing it with a particular intention, maybe we could notice that pull towards the habit, that escalation, that grasping. We can really see it when we have a, um, a kind of a moment of pleasantness in the meditative experience. <laughs> oh, some calm. You know, that habit of like, oh, I want to hold on to it. So the contact with the pleasant, and then we can see when we're listening, when we're looking, when we're sensitive, we can see the habit of the escalation, the grasping, the pushing and pulling on experience. And we can see that it rises with a contractedness, a limitation and a degree of dukkha. But what we were practicing this afternoon was, okay, we're turning to the pleasant Vedana, we're using that lens to notice that which is pleasant, uh, but we're opening to it in a responsive way. So we're seeing oh, what happens if I appreciate this. And I don't know if you notice what I did with my body when I said appreciate. Did you notice? I appreciate this. It's the opposite of contraction. Yeah. It's like when we escalate, when we grasp, we get tight. But when we appreciate, it has the opposite effect. Yeah. We're not contracted. We're relaxed. We're open. Yeah, we have that open palm enjoyment of something that is pleasant without trying to hold on to it. And that well-being that comes from that potentially grows. And we're a little bit experimenting with that in the guided practice. And what happens if we're really open to it, if we kind of plunge into it or surrender to it, what happens to the experience there? 
So this is one interesting thing about Vedana practice, and another is to see that Vedana itself yeah, is also conditioned, it's also constructed, it's also put together, right? It's an experience. Also conditioned, also put together, also constructed. It also um, doesn't have yeah, an independent, uh, fixed or neutral way of being. Doesn't exist independently of causes and conditions. So I want to give an example of that because it can sound quite lofty when I say that. It's a huh? Yeah. Well, let's kind of look at our experience. Yeah. We have a painful sensation in the body. Yeah. Yeah. There's a painful sensation in the body. And we would think a painful sensation in the body has an unpleasant Vedana, right? That'll be our gut response. Yeah. Anyone here likes to do um, yoga, Pilates, any form of exercise? Yeah, some of us. Are there painful sensations in the body that don't have an unpleasant Vedana in your experience? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. And sometimes if you really pay attention, you can see, oh, you know, it's, it's the same, you know, even the same stretch maybe when I'm sitting in meditation that feels painful. And when I'm doing, um, you know, the butterfly pose in, um, in yoga, yeah, is pleasant. Yeah. Very same thing, that opening of the hips. Yeah. So, yeah, this is interesting. Vedana yeah. itself is conditioned on the context, yeah, yeah, and the way of relating and what we're doing. Yeah. So we can say in Dharma language, Vedana reveals emptiness. It reveals the fact that experience is constructed. Yeah, that things do not have a kind of inherently um, independent existence of the way we relate and of countless causes and conditions. This is true of all phenomena. So a sensation is not inherently, it's not independently from its own side, pleasant or unpleasant. It can depend on the context, on the context, on the habit, on the interpretation, on the inclination, on the habits of our mind. There's a wonderful example of this that I use many times. It um, comes from a teacher I like a lot, Pema Chodron. Uh, some of you may know her, a teacher in the Tibetan tradition. And she gives this example in one of her books where she's standing on a boat with her uh, nephew. Yeah? And uh, she is feeling a fluttering sensation in the belly, a rapid heartbeat, a kind of a general kind of woo feeling and she doesn't like it. <laughs> She's like, oh, I don't like boats. And she knows she doesn't like boats. She's, she's feeling nervous and anxious and uneasy. Her nephew loves boats, loves being out in the sea, is really enjoying himself. But when he describes the physical sensations, they're exactly the same. Yeah? Feeling this you know, rapid heartbeat, the fluttering feeling in the, in the belly, this, oh, you know, it's, it's the same sensations. But the inclination, the way of relating, the habit, all of that yeah. means the Vedana is different, the interpretation is different. Yeah. 
of the experience. So really interesting to see. And Vedana reveals yeah, that things are empty. And Vedana is empty in itself. Yeah? It's conditioned, constructed, dependent, not fixed, and uh, not fixed, and it's definitely changeable. Yeah? As perhaps we were also seeing already today a little bit in the practice. And another example that I use a lot, but I just can't resist because I love it so much, is about an owl. Some of you have heard this countless times. There's a type of owl called, um, called the Scops owl. It's a small owl. And it has a really interesting call. The call of it sounds a little bit like a car alarm. Yeah, it's like, oh, oh, oh. I'm not doing it very well. Yeah, pretty well. It could pass for a Scops owl. In the meditation center that we teach at sometimes in, in Israel, Palestine, there's a, a, an owl like that <laughs> sometimes. And I love, you know, in talks to tell people, you know that sound that you're finding really irritating? It's an owl. And the Vedana changes. The sound hasn't changed. But when we thought it's some car, car alarm or house alarm or, you know, some annoying sound that somebody's not taking care of, it's annoying. Yeah, it's unpleasant. And when we realize, wow, it's an owl. Yeah. That for many of us, the Vedana will change. Yeah? And suddenly, you know, really listening for it. And every time it calls during a talk, you know, like, and everyone has a sense of wonder and appreciation. So the Vedana can change. Vedana can change according to the context and according to how we practice with it. It's not permanent, it's not fixed, changeable. And the way we relate, yeah, how we relate, yeah, so the Vedana is what we're paying attention to, but how we pay attention to it can also shape its appearance. So, you know, I've been kind of really milking the sympathy here by telling you I'm not well. Yeah, over the days, <laughs> I keep having examples of it. You know, but when the, when the body's ill, yeah, and that's kind of, you know, say, ah, oh, that has an unpleasant um, Vedana, but, you know, practice that I like to do when I'm not well is to actually bring appreciation to the body. They say, wow, you know, you're doing so much right now, <laughs> trying to deal with this. Um, whatever's going on, you're doing so much right now, trying to heal. And so grateful yeah, and appreciative of, you know, the fact that, you know, you, that this is happening. Mm -hmm. And so it can really change the experience also of being ill. <laughs> From that unpleasantness to a sense of, ah. Oh, Here's the appreciation again. It opens the contraction. Yeah. So we can change the Vedana yeah, with how we relate to the Vedana itself or to the object that it's associated with. Yeah. We were doing that with compassion today. Yeah. There's something unpleasant or painful. What happens when we bring compassion to that? Yeah. Hold it in tenderness. Yeah. Maybe you've noticed, maybe you know this, not even from your meditation practice, but compassion is a really amazing thing. Yeah? That we can be in touch with the painful, but that can actually feel good. Yeah? 
It's not a habitual way of um, thinking about it or meeting it or responding to it. So we can use, and that's what we were doing today, we can use this understanding of the kind of non-fixed nature of Vedana, the pliability, the flexibility of Vedana. Uh, We can use that in our practice, as we were doing today. We can turn the attention to particular Vedanas, and we can attend to what is happening with appreciation, with compassion, um, as we were doing. And this can really uh, open up the possibility to kind of bring out the most wholesome ways that we can relate to uh, ourselves, to others, and to the world. And so again, if we look at how we habitually meet, you know, the painful, the unpleasant, whether it's in here or in another or in the world, it's often with a sense of rejection. There's often that continuum of reactivity with that but we have the possibility to open with compassion and the vedana of those two experiences will be different and the kind of outcome of those two experiences over time those ways of relating will be different from the conditioned reactivity to the freedom possibility that pleasantness of the intimacy the tenderness and the care when there's compassion it's a very very beautiful um type of kind of well-being that arises for us and so we can see yeah these kind of um possibilities that open up for us for meeting our experience in ways uh, that have are habitual and take us down the route of limitation to ways that open up possibilities, yeah, open up avenues of response from kind of narrow and limited views to really wide vistas, yeah, wide possibilities. There's another um, beautiful um, aspect of Vedana teachings which relates uh, to this, to what I've just touched on. Um, and it's, it's called the worldly and unworldly Vedanas. Worldly Vedana and the unworldly Vedana. And this is a, it's a subtle teaching, but um, it can be so, so helpful. So I just want to unpack it a little bit because it's actually very beautifully. I was talking to Mark and Monica before the retreat and we were talking about this talk and suddenly I was like, worldly and unworldly Vedana as I was talking to them. And I thought, well, I, why don't I, will I talk about it? And then it's been coming up from you. Yeah. It's been coming up from you that this is, a, this is opening up in the, in the practice, in the experience. So I want to name it, explain it, touch on it a little bit. So what's this distinction between the worldly Vedana and the unworldly? We can say, um, you know, we know the pleasant Vedana of getting something 
yeah, for me. Yeah, that cup of tea we've been really looking forward to, um, you know, the, the comfy seat in the lounge, <laughs> whatever, whatever it may be, yeah. Something that we get, you know, for us. And, you know, it can be really harmless things like the ones I've just named. It's not like a big deal. But those are, you know, the pleasant of the worldly, yeah, the pleasant worldly Vedanas. And then we have the pleasant unworldly Vedanas. And that's, for example, what we feel when we give something to somebody else, you know, when generosity moves through us, yeah, and that feels good. You know that feeling? Yeah. And on retreat, actually, it happens a lot, yeah. Maybe, you know, we're, we're just about to join the queue and someone's coming at the same time and we let them go ahead of us. Yeah? Just a little moment. There's not even a lot of like conscious decision there. But maybe if we pay attention, we see how oh, that feels good. Yeah, that movement of generosity or the smiles that we exchange or holding a door open for someone. And also in our lives, we have these moments and that, that pleasure that comes, that pleasantness that comes with that kind of unworldly pleasant Vedana. And, and I'll say more about what that kind of, what that is. So if we said, yeah, again and again, that Vedana builds experience, yeah, it's a builder of experience, and we can see it can build experience towards that which is wholesome, and it can build experience towards that which is not wholesome. When we say wholesome, that which leads to the well-being of others, oneself and the world. And the unwholesome, the opposite, <laughs> that which, which leads away from it. And if we see um, Vedana as a builder of, of experience, then we can say, yeah, we can see that the unworldly Vedanas yeah, are leading to the wholesome. Yeah, they're leading to freedom in themselves. So when we don't see Vedana, yeah, when Vedana goes unseen, it leads to reactivity. Yeah, that we know. It's also very self-referential. Remember I said that in the first talk. Yeah? There's a very quiet for me in there. Pleasant for me. Unpleasant for me. Not interesting for me. Yeah? Very, very quiet, but it's there. And when it's unseen, leads to reactivity, self-referential, and often can lead to unwholesome mind states, speech, and actions, just because it goes unseen. And over the retreat, we've been working on just seeing it and stopping that process of escalation um, and build up. When we see the Vedana, when we kind of have a sense, a sensitivity to its um, appearance, to its presence, to the fact that it's there, yeah, then we can let go of some of the worldly Vedanas, as we've been doing, or we can attend to them with wisdom, like we've been doing. Yeah. This kind of unselfish appreciation of the beautiful and the pleasant. That's a skillful way of attending to a worldly Vedana. Unselfish appreciation of the beauty, of the goodness in the world. Or the compassion and the tenderness with the unpleasant. And the skillful action to alleviate the pain of the world. These are ways of attending with wisdom 
the refuge, you know, have the kind of neither nor Vedana, as I've said that a few times, you know, but it can be just a, such a different way of relating to these kind of, where, where there's less happening in experience, and we can actually take refuge in that as a calm place. And the skillfulness of generating um, interest. So we do all of that. All of that subtilizes, subtilizes experience and inclines it to the wholesome. And all of that um, supports ethical understanding and ethical uh, application also. Yeah. Understanding of, ah, inclining towards the wholesome. As our attention gets more subtle, and as we become more familiar with Vedana and more sensitive to it, we also begin to notice the unworldly Vedanas. Yeah? They're often more quiet, yeah? or they're just there in the super Vedana, and so we don't necessarily notice that unworldly aspect of them. The Vedanas that lead to the wholesome that bring less contraction. This is one of the ways yeah, we can tell. Yeah? They bring less contraction. Yeah? They are less self-referential. Yeah? They actually kind of bring the opposite, spaciousness. Yeah? Kind of a, a wider um, circle of care. So kind of a really common example, I've already given an example of the unworldly pleasant Vedana of, of generosity, for example, yeah, or of compassion. Um, but also, you know, the unworldly pleasant Vedana of the ease that can come in moments of meditation, yeah. just the meditative joy or the contentment yeah, that maybe we've felt so far on retreat just from the simplicity. So many people have said that that's an unworldly Vedana. Yeah, that contentment of just our simplicity. I don't need to be anyone in particular. I'm not at the beck and call of that. Remember that device, the mobile phone? <laughs> it's not constantly pay attention to me. Yeah. That contentment, that simplicity yeah, that um, we may be enjoying and retreat. Yeah. These are all unworldly, um, pleasant Vedanas, and they're onward leading, uh, onward leading to the wholesome and to the free. So I want to uh, give a, an example. Um, it's just a, a week ago, I think on Sunday, we had a meditation in action day at, in London at Tower Hamlet Cemetery Park, if anyone's been to that wondrous place. Um, and I was already unwell. You'd be bored to know uh, by that point. This has been going on for nearly two weeks now. Um, and so, you know, we were doing, we're working on a path in the park. And I realized as soon as we were given the instructions, I was like, I'm not going to be able to do any of this. <laughs> I can't even do the easy tasks. Yeah. I, I just can't do it. My body just cannot do it. So what am I going to do? You know, here we are outside, it's cold, um, everybody else is working, I'm supposed to be leading this day. Uh, I'll meditate. 
It's a good skill to have, you know, when you can't do anything else. Yeah, I'll meditate. So there was a bench and it was a metal bench. And I sat down to meditate with all my layers. I'm a person of layers. You don't want to know how many layers I'm wearing now. I had a lot more there outside. Uh, And still the unpleasant worldly Vedana of a very cold seat was uh, very apparent. Yeah, I'm sitting, meditating, I'm starting to meditate, this joy in meditation, and then the cold seat is making itself known. (laughs) Unpleasant. Unpleasant. And this is where it gets interesting. So here's the kind of unworldly, pleasant Vedana of the intention of the day, of the commitment to the day, of the meditation, which as soon as I sit down is already happening. And then there's the worldly, unpleasant Vedana of the cold seat. What do I do? What do I do with that? I can put that unpleasant, worldly Vedana within the larger vessel, of the intention, of the possibility, and of the deep well-being that meditation brings. And when I do that, that unpleasantness is transformed into what? Into energy, into commitment, into a sense of participation. So I'm sitting here with a cold bum, (laughs) meditating, and I'm participating in this meditation and action day. Yeah. I'm part of the community. I'm part of the community. And so the unworldly, pleasant Vedana of the meditation, yeah, and the contentment and the joy that grows. Yeah. And the coldness, yeah, it stays, it's there. Yeah. But the impact of it disappears. Yeah. It's just another thing. It's just another thing. Just like the seat is hard, it's also cold. Just like um, the birds are singing, (laughs) this is cold. It's just another thing that's there in the space. Doesn't need to take up more of the energy, more of the resource, more of the attention. Doesn't need to impact the building of experience in that way. Does that make sense? Kind of. Yeah. Told you, like, just, just the saying it is tricky, let alone the understanding. Yeah. The pleasant unworldly and the pleasant worldly. They don't know, it's a mouthful. So it can be clearer to us, yeah, what the pleasant unworldly Vedanas are. Yeah. Meditative joy. Um, all the wholesome ways of relating to experience, like we've mentioned appreciation, joy, contentment, patience, right? That, that, that is clearer. What would an unpleasant, unworldly Vedana be? Just to get your minds in a twist, <laughs> along with my tongue. Yeah? What would that be? So the first thing to remember yeah, about the unworldly Vedanas is they're onward leading. They're leading to the wholesome. Yeah, they're leading to freedom. They're leading to well-being of self and other. And so, for example, 
Yeah, something like remorse. When we know we've been unskillful and we feel remorse, that initial contact with remorse is unpleasant, right? Or when we meet the pain of ourselves in the world, it's unpleasant. But remorse is or can be an unworldly, unpleasant Vedana. Because if we know how to work with it, if we don't don't let it kind of lean over and become shame or self-blame or guilt, then that is actually an onward leading experience. That wholesomeness that's available of meeting our deep aspirations towards non-harming. It's a manifestation of that, our deep care, our deep love the potential to realign with those aspirations, to bring forth forgiveness, to bring forth a commitment to grow, to learn. That is wholesome. That's onward leading. Does that make sense? (laughs) For some of us, yeah, yeah. And so that real kind of um, seeing, yeah, there's kind of more subtle layers and levels of our experience. And that movement of where is this leading? Where is this going? What's the potential uh, for growth here? That wholesomeness and the unwholesome. Where is that leading? To the well-being of myself, of others in the world, or away from that well-being? And it's not always an easy question to ask, and it's definitely not always an easy question to answer. But that's why this is an exploration. That's why, as Nathan said, this path is like a laboratory. We experiment and we try and we learn. And as we become more familiar, yeah, more familiar, with Vedana, we can attune more to the unworldly Vedanas, to the wholesome aspects of them. Another one, um, you know, which is a good example is renunciation. It's a word we don't like in our our culture. You know, it, it feels, it sounds, you know, we're habituated to see it as giving something up. Yeah. Something that is good, something that we want, but actually, It's renouncing that harming. It's renouncing that which does not lead to our long-term happiness. It's a beautiful, um, unworldly Vedana there. So tuning more to the unworldly Vedanas, tuning more, being more sensitive to what leads to the wholesome. And again, we can start playing, and I really invite you to do that, is that we can actually take a worldly Vedana and subtilize it to become unworldly. That's what we're doing in the practice today. We're saying, ah, pleasant or unpleasant, and then we were working with it in the guided practice in ways that kind of direct it, cultivate it, hone it towards the unworldly. So appreciation and gratitude have an unworldly Vedana, pleasant, compassion, 
both pleasant and unpleasant, depending exactly where, where, at what stage of it you're at, yeah? in, the, in the moment, in the unfolding. So we can take the beauty of a sunset, yeah? or the comfort of a perfect cup of tea. You know when a cup of tea is just perfect? Ever get these moments? It's just perfect, and we can take that pleasure, we can take that enjoyment, we can take that pleasant Vedana, and we can subtilize it. Yeah? We can open to the nourishment. We can open to appreciation. We can open yeah, to gratitude. And as we do that, like the whole um, sense of our experience expands. And that nourishment might become, you know, a nourishment that goes way beyond this present experience and what I'm getting out of it. So opening to nourishment, to care, to resourcing. So much about being somewhere like Gaia House is about resourcing ourselves. That's a complex world out there. We need these places of refuge to resource, to connect, to see, to find contentment in simple things. To open to a joy that is not selfish. You know, I'm enjoying this cup of tea and I feel the, the, the blessedness of that and the gratitude that comes with that. And we're not holding on to it. So we kind of open to that care, that resourcing, and that non-selfish, non-self-centered joy and appreciation. And let it open us all the way out into love for the world, love for the world and all its beings. So we can use this understanding again and again, the understanding of that pliability of Vedana, the fact that it um, is conditioned like everything else. We can use it in ways that allow us, that support us to bring out the best, yeah, the wholesome, the best in our view of self, of others, and of the world. And as we do that, you know, we're nourishing, we're bringing to the front, you know, we're strengthening qualities like friendliness, like goodwill, like compassion, like joy, yeah, equanimity renunciation, generosity, patience, the countless of these beautiful qualities of heart and mind. We're bringing them forth and we're tuning into them in our practice and in our lives. And we're feeling the wholesomeness in them. This is so important to feel the wholesomeness in them. That's again something that we do on retreat. The wholesomeness and then from the wholesomeness we can trace our way back. Oh yeah, unworldly Vedana, that arises with them. And so we can do that, as I said, in simple moments when we're just struck by the light, yeah, or the shadow, yeah, and a piece of the earth, yeah, or we're touched by, you know, an act of generosity, or we have a moment of contentment in our practice. And we can equally do that at times that are more challenging. So maybe uh, we're practicing and hindrances are present. You know, there's restlessness or there's dullness. 
or there's greed or aversion or there's doubt. And we have that choice. We recognize the Vedana of the experience and we have the choice not to follow the reactivity. Not to follow that potential for escalation. And instead to tune into our intention. We turn our attention to our intention. Why am I here? Nathan was saying it this morning. Why am I here? What is it that I wish to cultivate, to develop? And can I meet this present moment experience in alignment with that? Honoring that aspiration, honoring that intention. And we generate, as we do this, the willingness to meet this moment of experience, which is very likely not what we would have um, kind of chosen for ourselves if it's a hindrance attack. But we're meeting that in a way that nourishes that which we wish to see and that nourishes our commitment to transformation. So we can bring everything and anything onto the path. And there's nothing that does not belong. We can bring everything and anything onto the path as fuel for our awakening. It's another quote from Pema Chodron. <laughs> fuel for our awakening. Fuel for the awakening of the world. So as we practice, these possibilities open up more choice, more agency in where we bring attention. Do I just get locked into that struggle with the hindrances? Or do I remember there's intention here and that intention is beautiful? And can I turn my attention to that? And let that hold this experience as it unfolds. Because when we bring attention to something, that is what we're nourishing. We give the gift of our attention. Gift of our attention, and that's what we nourish. So this way of practicing is transferable beyond the retreat conditions. You know, retreat conditions are really, really useful for our practice. Really, really useful. But we're also learning skills here that are transferable, at least some of them, beyond the retreat conditions. And so we can go into the world, and this is a game I like to play with myself, with the intention to see kindness, or with the intention to see generosity, to see, you know, to have unworldly Vedana (laughs) through the actions of others. And the interesting thing is that often when I go out with that intention, it reveals, reveals small moments, large moments of generosity, of kindness, of compassion, whatever it is that I've kind of decided to focus on. And that is transformative. That willingness, just like in our practice, when we're sitting here with an aching knee or a restless mind, and we're willing to meet that in the same way, we say, ah, you know, we have no control over everything that happens in our life, about 
all the conditions. But can I have the intention to meet the difficult in ways that nourish growth and transformation? Can I have that intention? And what happens to the heart and mind when I allow that, when I take that in? In the tradition, sometimes this language of nobility is used. It's very beautiful. Slightly even sometimes embarrassing just to say, you know, nobility not is something that you inherit, yeah, but nobility as, you know, something beautiful and valuable and precious in the world. So being willing to meet ourselves, like we're each doing here, that willingness to meet ourselves and our experience is noble. And it's worth appreciating. And it's worth remembering. And when we do this, it doesn't only impact our own experience. It's not just about what happens in here. Because through shaping our inner experience, we're also shaping the world. The world that we experience, the world that we inhabit. We can meet others from a place that knows and recognizes that there is wholesome and unwholesome potentiality, possibility in everyone. You recognize that potential for wholesomeness in ourselves and in others. In personal interactions, seeing the goodness or seeing the good intentions or seeing the vulnerability now, there's so many lenses we can look at that shape the world. Remembering it's a balance. Yeah? There's a balance of wisdom and compassion here. Now, sometimes I say these kind of things and, you know, I'm sure somebody is thinking, does that mean we become doormats? <laughs> you know, just walking around and just thinking, oh, you know, everyone's got good intentions. Do we lose our discernment? No, this path is a path of wisdom and of compassion, and those two work together. So we can see the vulnerability, and we can see the potential in others, and we can still stand up for what is right, for what is wholesome in the world. We don't lose the discernment. It's just held in something bigger. So this path, yeah, as a vehicle for our deepest and most beautiful, most noble aspirations on this earth. And our potential, yeah, for each of us, we're all shaping the world as we engage with our experience, both inwardly and outwardly, yeah, within ourselves and between us. We're all contributing. We're shaping the world as we engage with our experience over and over again. We're doing this for the benefit, for the benefit of all. So I wanted just to touch on a 
experience, just to close, um, that I used to have in a very special place to me, to us, um, a leprosy community in India called Anandawan, Forest of Joy. And uh, we started going there in 2004. Um, and that's where we also came up with the idea to form this movement of meditation and action retreats like the one at Tower Hamlets that I just mentioned. And we used to spend a month there every year with a group doing service work as part of our practice. And my uh, passion, my love for many years was to work there in what they called the wisdom bank. Yeah, where the elderly members of the community who could no longer work or look after themselves completely lived. Yeah, it's a beautiful way of calling it, right? The wisdom bank. And the wisdom bank was at one side of the community and our accommodation was right on the other. So I'd need to walk through kind of a lot of the, of the community when I'd be coming back after work. Yeah. And it would always be very tender, you know, this kind of sense of working with, caring for, uh, giving and receiving you know, with these older beings you know, whose bodies told so much and the great honor you know, to be able to massage, to comb the hair, to care for them you know, in that really simple way and to receive so much in return. I always feel this great tenderness in that. And when I'd walk back, and I liked, even though often there'd be a group of us working there, but I really liked to walk back on my own uh, along the main uh, road of the community. Because that walk would be a place where I could feel the tenderness of my heart. You know, every day it would break. Yeah. Every day it would break, but in a way that allowed growth. Yeah. And it still does, just thinking about it. And I used to call that walk in my head uh, the walk of broken hearts or breaking hearts. Yeah. Because I would also meet members of the community and every time there'd be this exchange of namaste, you know, the bowing down to the nobility in the other. Yeah, that's that greeting. I would feel my heart breaking in a way that strengthened it, yeah? And so the, kind of this, yeah, this movement in ourselves, yeah, when we're willing to be here, we're willing to be present, when we're willing to become sensitive to our experience, and when we align with <coughs> what nourishes the wholesome in the world, which starts in each of us yeah, and grows and ripples yeah, more and more. So that was a big teaching for me, uh, understanding that the heartbreaking yeah, is a beautiful thing yeah, in that, yeah, in those circumstances. That tenderness yeah, is the growth of strength. Uh, of compassion, of the wholesome and the onward leading.
So let's have a moment of silence together to bring this to a close. May we walk this path of the wholesome, of the noble, of the free. And may our practice together be a nourishment and a support to the well-being of all beings everywhere, to the well-being of this precious earth that we share. So thank you for your listening, your presence, and your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.